Okay, so um, it's a pleasure to have uh, Jalaja Bonheim here with us, who um, has written uh, a book called Evolving Toward Peace uh, that has come out of her work with Palestinian and, uh, and Israeli women and lots of different, uh, different people coming together and being able to hear each other through this uh, work that she does, circle work. So, um, I'm going to uh, stop talking and, uh, and so we can hear from her and, uh, thank you for coming and it's a real pleasure to have you here. I just want to say thanks so much to James for inviting me, and it's, it's really, um, it's the first time that I'm going to be talking about my new book, and it feels like really an honor to be doing it in this setting, in this community, which I know is a, um, an extraordinarily conscious community, and you are really the kind of people that I wrote this book for, so I'm, I'm very grateful. Um, I think I'll start just by telling you a little bit about my own background. Um, I am German, and I grew up in Austria and Germany. I was born, I think, eight years after World War II ended. So growing up, I was really surrounded by a lot of devastation. There were ruined houses, There were ruined bodies. There were a lot of men with no limbs or half of their face shot up. And, of course, there were ruined psyches. And um, I remember looking at all this as a very young child and just wondering about it. And I am also Jewish. Um, My grandparents fled in 1938. Um, taking their three sons with them, one of them my father. And so my father was one of the few German Jews who, after the war, elected to go back. So in addition to this devastation of the war, I was also contemplating these images of the Holocaust and these the photographs of these haunted faces of the survivors. And... I, I say all this because I think at a very young age this question began to form in me, which is really the question that eventually led to this, this book that I have just written. And the question was quite simply, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with us? Actually, at one point I wanted to call the book that, and then people said, no, no, you can't call your book what's wrong with <laughs> So I, I, I was dissuaded of that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, it was very clear to me that it wasn't a question of whether one was Jewish or whether one was German. There were atrocities happening all over the world, and of course there still are. And it seemed to me that something was very wrong with our species, No other species slaughters millions of its own kind. And then consider now what we are doing with the environment. What other species destroys the foundations of its own existence? So um, how many 
many of you feel that we um, that a change in in the collective consciousness of our species is happening or needs to happen? And just yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, so um, you know there are many people who are gathering in circles to to really counteract all the negativity and the stress and the fear that is in the collective consciousness by going into a peaceful place and sending out that positive energy into the world. And that is certainly part of what happens in my circles. But is it enough? No. I do not think it is enough. And, um, you know, because I think a lot of people that are talking and writing about the transformation of collective consciousness are visionaries and spiritual seekers. Whereas the work that I'm doing is sort of more in the trenches. It's sort of where the rubber meets the road. And I know that to accentuate the positive is, is not enough. And I think Jung had it right. Jung said at one point, you do not become enlightened by visioning figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. So I feel that that is an important part of our work in these times to to really explore what is this darkness in us and how can we make it conscious. My own entry into spirituality wasn't through Judaism because my parents were not religious. It was through Hinduism. And um, in, I think it was 1978 or 79, I went to India to study Indian temple dance and became very immersed in the teachings of Hinduism. And when I would ask this question, what's wrong with us, the answer I would get was, it's the ego. And of course, that is an answer we get in many spiritual traditions. It's the ego. So what is the ego? The ego is this part of us that doesn't understand that we are interconnected, that really doesn't get that we are one, and that perceives itself as this separate, vulnerable, isolated being. And therefore, it's essentially self-centered, it's selfish, and supposedly it's the cause of all our problems. When I heard this story, I got kind of depressed because by this time, you know, I'd done my fair share of meditation and therapy and personal growth and you name it, and my ego was not about to give up the ghost, you know. And so I thought, based on that, you know, if if the future of our species depends upon our overcoming the ego, we're toast. There's no way. 
So um, I think that this quest, this this story that we've often been told in different variations. Some people say you have to kill the ego. Some people say no, you just have to detach from it, um, or you have to transcend it. Um, but one way or another, the message is somehow you got to disable the ego because it's getting in the way. It's the reason we're not able to live in peace. And I would like to tell you a different story. And um, I'm not going to suggest that this story is the true story. I don't think there is a true story. But I think that the stories we tell ourselves are very important. And this story we've been telling ourselves about the ego may not be serving us so well anymore. So in this other story, you know, nature, she uh, worked very hard for billions of years to bring forth life. And when she finally succeeded, she was thrilled. The only problem was these little forms of life were very, very vulnerable. And they could be like wiped out in a heartbeat. And she didn't want that to happen. So she instilled in each one of her creatures this fierce live, desire to live, this desire to survive. Of course, along with that, she also had to give them the illusion that they were separate. Otherwise, they would not have fought through their survival. You can imagine one of our ancestors, you know, this hungry grizzly bear comes along and and you just sort of say, I am all things. I am the hungry grizzly bear. It wouldn't have worked, you know. So there is the seed of the ego. And as far as I'm concerned, the ego is a sacred function because it evolved in service of life. It evolved to keep us alive. And obviously, for thousands of years, it did a pretty good job. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today. So that said, it's obvious that in our day and age, our ego is not doing such a great job. In fact, it's, it's like it's become our worst enemy. So then the question is, how did that happen? How did this function that was supposed to be our best friend, our protector, how did it turn into our worst enemy? And the conclusion I've come to is that our ego, it's sort of a little bit like a GPS. You know, when you have a GPS, these maps have to be programmed into it. Well, you think of a GPS that gets programmed with bad maps, it's going to lead you astray because the maps are bad. Well, in the case of our ego, there are two sets of maps that got programmed into our ego. And you have to remember, you know, when we're in therapy and so on, there's a tendency just to focus on our personal ego. It's like, okay, I had this childhood, these parents, and this is how I evolved this ego. 
But the ego is basically a collective formation, and it evolved over millions of years. So really, to understand our ego, you have to look at the bigger picture of our evolution. And the first thing you see is that for something like 99.99% of human history, all human beings lived in small tribal groups. And, you know, for us, the tribal world seems very distant, very far away, but really it's just, it's just the, the way we live is just a few milliseconds in the bigger picture. So when you imagine living in a small tribe, usually these tribes were very isolated, Within each tribe, there was total homogeneity. So everyone had the same race, the same ancestry, the same beliefs, the same language. If you had asked any of our ancestors, what is the most important thing to survive? They would have said, it's my tribe. There was nothing more important than your tribe. So fast forward to our times. Here we are in the global era, but our ego doesn't realize that. It's still living in the tribal era. It's programmed with this old map. And so all around the world, you have these tribal wars going on. You know, when I was, when I work in Israel, I really see that this is essentially a tribal war. There are tribal wars going on all around the world. And even in this country, this is a very, very tribal country. You know, I was like listening to the news last, I think it was last week, they were discussing the drones, the use of, of drones. And um, over and over, they kept bringing up the fact that these drones had killed four U.S. citizens. You know, What about the thousands upon thousands of citizens of other nations? They, the life of an American citizen counts more because this is the tribal way of thinking. Our people are more important. Now, um, in my book, I, I write a lot about what I call tribal conditioning, and it has many different manifestations, which I, I won't go into here. Um, but I would say don't think that you are beyond that. It is in, within all of us. It affects us all in one form and another. Uh, judgment is another example. Judgment really is a form of tribal conditioning. We all struggle with it. This is how our ego has been conditioned. So, as I mentioned, there are like two sets of maps. So the one comes from the tribal era. There's a second set that is much more recent. And it comes from what I call the era of control. Now, the era of control began to evolve about 4,000 years ago in Europe. And for a long time, it was essentially what I call control addiction. It was essentially a European phenomenon. Then 
with the Industrial Revolution, it began to spread around the world. And today, really, it's a, it's a global epidemic. So we absorbed the second story. The first story was nothing matters more than your tribe. But the second story was nothing matters more than having power and control. Power and control, first and foremost, over nature. I, uh, you maybe have read those amazing words by uh, Lao Tzu. I think he wrote them 2,500 years ago, um, already within the era of control. And he, he was addressing it directly. He said, do you think you can improve the universe? I don't think it can be done. The universe is sacred. You cannot improve it. And then he said, if you try, you will destroy it. Such prophetic words, you know. So as I mentioned, um, this, this era of control is much more recent, and it really only quite recently became a global phenomenon. And in my book, I tell this little story about uh, Jung, the psychologist, in the 1920s, Jung came to the United States, and he had a meeting there that had an enormous impact on him. It was a meeting with a Pueblo chief. And this Pueblo chief said to Jung, you know, we think that the white people are insane. And... He said, you know, they seem so unhappy. They're so restless, and they always seem to be looking for something, but we can't figure out what it is. <laughs> and he said, we think they're crazy. And Jung said, well, maybe they're unhappy, but what makes you think they're actually insane? And the Pueblo chief said, they say... They think with their heads. And Jung said, well, yes. What do you think with? And the Pueblo chef said, of course we think with our heart. And to him it was obvious that this was a sign of insanity, that here was a race of people who claimed to think with their heads. Now, that is, of course, the uh, central symptom of control addiction because our mind, of course, it is our mind is the most potent instrument of control that we have. And so when, once control addiction takes over, there is this displacement of our energy from the torso, from the heart, from the belly, up into the head. And so just as the foundational symptom of tribal conditioning is us versus them thinking, well, the foundational symptom of control addiction is thought addiction. And, of course, as meditators, we are only too familiar with that, um, that kind of thought addiction. Now, you might think, based on this story I just told, that, well, 
you know, these indigenous people, they were still connected with their heart. They, uh, they were not really, uh, subject to this kind of disconnection from the heart. But that wouldn't be true. Because as I mentioned, tribal conditioning also creates this us versus them thinking. So yes, you think from your heart within your tribe. You think from your heart when you're relating to the people who have been designated as us. But there's a very firm boundary, and you go outside of that, and there's no more heart thinking. And in fact, in a lot of um, indigenous languages, the word for human being is the same word as the word for tribal member. In other words, if you're not one of us, you're not even necessarily a human being. So here we are, and this is the ego we are dealing with. Our ego, in my opinion, is as sacred as ever. It wants to protect us. But it's been conditioned in these ways that are totally out of sync with the needs of the present. What we need in our times is to awaken to our oneness as a single planetary community. That is the need. So, unfortunately, we can't just say to our ego, you know, that tribal thing, it's not working anymore, let it go. And you know that control thing, if you haven't noticed, things are kind of spinning out of control. It's not working so well. So let's forget about that. It doesn't work. Because what changes us are not really abstract ideas. Usually what changes us are experiences. And this is why I feel so passionate about circles. Because the circle is really a profound tool that allows us to work directly with our collective consciousness and that allows us to have experiences that dissolve tribal conditioning, that dissolve control addiction. Now, it's interesting, you know, I mentioned before, for 99.9% of our history, we lived in tribes. And so, of course, the circle is a very ancient tribal form. And so, in our circles today, we are essentially using this tribal form to undo tribal conditioning. In a tribal circle, as I mentioned, there was great homogeneity. In our circles, there is tremendous diversity. So you are sitting in circle with people who are very different from you, people whom you might otherwise not meet. You know, when I work in Israel, Israel is in many ways a very segregated country. So there might be like a, um, an Arab village on one hill and then a Jewish village on the next hill, and they might never really have a meaningful encounter. 
So for many of these people, my circles were the first place where they really got to experience each other. I remember on my last trip at the end of a retreat we did, there was a a Jewish woman, and she said, you know, um, I'm not proud of this, but the truth is, in the past, whenever I would hear that call to prayer wafting over from the Muslim village, I would feel this clenching in my gut. I would feel this fear. And then she looked at the Arabs in the circle and she said, you know, now it's going to be different. I'm going to think of your faces. And when I hear that call to prayer, I'm going to feel love. I'm going to feel love. So there you see that that dissolution of the tribal conditioning. So these days, many, many groups are meeting in circles because it is in the collective consciousness. There's an awareness that we need it. But in my experience, most circles don't really have a lot of awareness or skill in terms of what is this tool and how can you really use it most effectively. So... I've sort of, for the last 30 years, been on a mission to help people use circle gatherings as a tool for healing and transformation. When I first started leading circles, I shared the very individualistic bias of our culture. Anne was just reminding me that we were in circles, I think, 25 years ago, (laughs) Um, but at that point if you had asked me what is the purpose of the circle I probably would have said something like um, well there's a lot of healing that happens there is a lot of transformation that happens there is awakening that happens and that was true and it still is true but today my perspective is very different Today, I really feel that with each circle, we are contributing to a collective transformation and that that is really the power of the circle. Circle work, which is what I call the the form of working with circles that I teach, it's really grounded in two distinct lineages The first is the lineage of people who throughout the ages around the world have gathered in circles to affirm community. Uh, At some point I wondered, like, how long have we been doing this? And then I thought to myself, well, probably we've been gathering in circles ever since we started using fire, right? It makes sense that we would have gathered around our fires. And I learned that the first evidence of human fire pits is 790,000 years old. So that means we have circles in our DNA. We have been doing this for a very, very long time. The second lineage, if you want to call it that, that circle work stands in is one that is very uh, essential to the Buddhist tradition because it is the lineage of approaching the circle 
as a mandala. In other words, approaching the circle as a sacred form, a form that is imbued with sacred power. This, again, is a very ancient practice and universal practice. Some of you may be familiar with those beautiful words by, the, uh, by Black Elk, the Native American chief, and he was trying to explain their spirituality to the white people. And the first thing he said was, you will have noticed that everything we do is done in a circle because the power of the world moves in circles. And then he began to speak of the the sun being round and so on. And he said, even birds, they build their nests in circles because theirs is the same religion as ours. And even, you know, even in the European tradition, um, I was reminded when I came in and I saw these beautiful stained glass windows here, um, those round windows that you see in cathedrals like Chartres, They weren't just ornaments. Um, the, The medieval definition of the divine was God is a circle whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. So when you begin to consciously work with the circle as a sacred form, it becomes alive, it becomes a living source of wisdom. It's almost like it becomes our spiritual teacher. And it begins to say to us, what I am, you are too. You too are whole. You too are one. And so then what Jung called uh, the awakening of the archetypal power of the circle happens. I think Jung was one of the first in the West who really began to recognize the power of the circle, even though he never worked with groups. He worked one-on-one. But he said the circle is the archetype of oneness. It's the archetype of wholeness. It's the archetype of divinity. And by calling it an archetype, what he was saying is, It's already in every one of us. It's not something we have to be taught from the outside. We already know it. It's within us. And in my circles, I find that to be very, very true. People come to the circle and it's like, oh, yes, I know. I also see that there's a tremendous releasing of fear that happens. You know, we we live in a very fear-based society. And, of course, there is a lot in our times to be afraid of. It's a, These are scary times. Um, and at the same time, we know that a lot of times our fear doesn't really serve us. And it just makes that control-addicted, thought-addicted mind spin faster. There's this great line in one of Hafiz's poems where he says, um, he says something like, fear is the cheapest room in the hotel. I would like to see you in better accommodations. <laughs> and in the circle, I see that there's a sense of, 
Once you begin to feel that you are in that mandala, it is holding us. The center is here. There is such a sense of relief. It's really beautiful to see. Now, um, some people talk a lot about, well, we have to, we have to awaken this new collective consciousness and, and I don't think that we really have to awaken anything. I think it is awakening. Anyhow. It's just like in spring, which in Ithaca, where I live, was last week. Um, you know, you don't have to pull the daffodils out of the ground. You don't have to pry them open. So this, this new awareness, this awakening to our oneness as a global community, it's already happening. And I think one of the clearest signs is the Internet. I mean, just think of that word, the World Wide Web. Wow. You know, and with all its limitations, it's the most amazing manifestation of our collective consciousness as a species. It's quite extraordinary. And um, at the same time, it is clear that what is happening is sort of like a birthing. The birth happens whether you want it or not. You can't stop birthing. But at the same time, birth can be dangerous, and it is important to have midwives. And so I feel like each one of us in these times, we are being called upon to serve as midwives, each in our own way. So um, I do want to be sure today to have a lot of time for, for questions and answers because this new book that I wrote, um, and by the way, there are cards here um, about it. It's not out yet, but you can take a card, and there's also cards on the table in the back, so you can find out. I think it will be out in August. Um, it, the purpose, really, as I see it of this book, is to inspire discussion and thought so that we can really begin to look at these things as a community, as a global community. Um, so but before I end, I just want to sort of mention three pointers for us to really be able to serve as midwives to this awakening. Um, I, this morning I was thinking of that word ace. You know, there used to be all these ace hardware stores here. I don't know if they're, are they there? No. If you forget what I say, remember that word ace, A-C-E. Okay, three words. The first word is attitude. Now, when we are working in my circles, we're always aware that every step that we take towards healing, towards awakening, is a contribution to the whole. And I would really invite you to do the same. I'm sure you've heard that old anecdote about the guy who walks by a building site and there's two workers and he asks them what they're doing. And the first says, I'm laying bricks. And the second says, I'm building a cathedral. And they're doing the exact same thing. And, you know, 
which one of those two is going to have more inspiration, more enthusiasm, more energy? So I think once we really understand that every step we take really is a contribution to this global transformation, there's a tremendous amount of energy and courage that comes out of that. Just a few weeks ago, I was working with a young woman, and she had been date-raped when she was 16. And she was still feeling a lot of shame about it. She felt like she had made bad choices, and she was blaming herself. And there was another woman in the circle who had had a very similar experience. And that woman said to her, you know, if you can shed your shame... It's really going to help me shed my shame. And when she heard that, it was like no stopping her. You know, there was a sense that, well, there are probably millions of women, young women like me in this situation. I'm not going to hang on to this old story for their sake, if not just for mine. So that's the A, that's the attitude. Now, the C, there's a lot of great C words. There's, there's communication, connection, communion, community, co-creation. And I think the reason there's all these great C words is because in Latin, the word, I think it's con, means together, with. So they all have to do with joining forces, with sharing with connecting, with talking. You know, we have, as a collective, we have everything we need. We have the resources. We have the wisdom. We have it all. But we need to connect and share it. And then the E. The E stands for education. And I write about this in my book. I feel like we have a huge task of education ahead of us. We are so poorly educated about the things that really matter. I mean, you look at all these kids in school and they're learning algebra and geometry, but they're not learning how to relate. They're not learning how to resolve conflict. You know, and this art of maintaining harmonious relationships, what could be more important than that? So my hope is, you know, in my book, I sort of do lay out, these are the symptoms of tribal conditioning. These are the symptoms of control addiction. Learn to recognize them. These are the tools we can use for transforming them. We need to educate ourselves. And again, I would emphasize we have everything that it takes. It's all there. We just need to apply and come together to share it. So I think I'd like to just close with this little prayer that um, closes my book. And it is a Pueblo prayer. And it says, I add my breath to your breath that our days be long upon this earth. that the days of our children be long upon this earth. 
that me that we might be as one body that we might finish our road together thank you so um we can just uh, open it up to conversation um questions and one thing that i think i'll start with the first question um just uh can you give a sense of how you do organize the circle so that people can really hear each other and and uh uh not just connect but but see the divinity in mm-hmm. each other and 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 out of that uh have create that field where something something else comes through yeah yeah well the first thing i do when i start a circle is some way of bringing people into their hearts um there is one practice we do that i call the heart greeting and maybe i'll just share it just so you can see how i'll share it with you so you have to stand up for this So we you would be in a group of people it's a wonderful thing to share with your kids too. So you would come up to someone in the circle and you would face them. You would put your right hand on their chest and you would do the same. Then you would put your left hand over your own heart. Then you just close your eyes. and you breathe through a blessing for this being for this person you feel the connection between your two hearts and you feel a blessing for this relationship that it might be a contribution to peace and then you just stay there as long as it feels right and then when you feel ready you just let go and then you would be just walking around the space and you would come to someone else and you would share the heart greeting with them so um you might do that with you know three or four people it's a very simple thing but by the time you've done that you're in a very different space than when you walked in the door and it's all done in silence so it really helps to take us out of that chattery place where we come in um that's just one one example of what we do then of course there are a lot of tools that most circles use such as the talking uh the talking stone or talking object where each person who holds the object speaks everyone else just listens there's no interrupting and so this really develops that discipline of deep listening so often in our daily life you know you, you're talking to a friend and they're still talking and you're already in your head you're already answering especially it's especially interesting if someone pushes your buttons and you really don't like what they say and you want to jump in and argue and and you can't you just listen by the time that 
stone comes around to you, you're usually in a totally different place. So I think that that practice of deep listening is very important. Um, Also storytelling, you know, just when you hear people's stories, especially when you're working with people who come in with the perception that they are my enemies. And you begin to hear your stories, that enemy projection just dissolves. It's gone. It's just, there's no place for it. So, I I mean, I could talk for hours about the circle because it's my passion. So, mm -hmm. Thank you. Anyone? I really loved the film, oh, Harvey Milk. And uh, on NPR, there was an interview uh, with a very young filmmaker. And he said that not only was Harvey the first gay mayor, or not mayor, but a council member in the city, but he clearly was willing to die for bringing people out of the closet Mm -hmm. and helping them to not be ashamed. Mm -hmm. And this young man who made the film was in Utah where there are Mormons, I think. And he was really, (laughs) his family was really strict, but he knew he was gay and he was thinking of how he could commit suicide. And then he happened upon uh, finding out about Harvey Milk somehow And he said, wow, if this guy could do this, there's hope. I don't have to be ashamed. And I really think, and then he made the film, I think it's the same way with child abuse, mental illness. Why should people go around being ashamed? There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just a different form of loving, violent love or secure love. So I really like the A in the formula you gave us. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank you, yeah. And I think, you know, when you're working one-on-one with a counselor, it is so easy to think, this is my issue, this is my problem. That just dissolves in the circle. It is so clear that everything we're working with is ours. There is nothing that is mine. It's all ours. And that really helps cut through the shame. Yeah, thank you. Um, when you speak about the circle, and you're talking about people already in the circle, but the hard thing, it seems to me, is how do you get people to come to the circle, especially in the circumstances that you have experienced in the Middle East, which is exemplary of, you know, the division that we live with. Mm-hmm. 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 You must have to overcome a great deal of cynicism and an ego. So how do you... How do you begin to do that? Well, you're right. And, you know, I think it takes a lot of courage, too. When you're in a circle, there's nowhere to hide. It takes courage to come to a circle. And it's absolutely true. Not everyone is willing to do it. And um, But at the same time, I think there are enough people who are willing to do it. 
And, you know, I think of that tipping point where they said it only takes something like 11% to make a tipping point happen where the collective can shift. And I think more and more people are aware that there is a crisis that we need to change. And also, a shift has happened in people's perception of the circle. Because initially, you know, when the circle started sort of resurfacing in the 60s, it was seen as this very alternative, hippie, woo-woo kind of thing. Well, now there are circles in corporations, and there are circles in churches, and there are circles in community centers, and there are AA meetings. There are circles everywhere. And so I think that the willingness to try it out um, has grown much larger than it used to be. And yes, not everyone is going to do it, and that's okay too. But how do you uh, invite people? How do they how do they find out and say, "Oh, gee, I want to I want to be part of that circle"? Say a, a Palestinian woman yeah. or. A, uh, or when you well, Palestinians um, and Israelis. In in Israel, what happened? It was so interesting because I, you know, I was working in Canada and the United States, and I was, and at that time, I think Afghanistan was being bombed. This must have been two thousand and one or something. And I felt such a sense of compassion for the women there. I kept thinking about the women and how the women are the ones who you have to keep life going. And I sort of sent out this prayer to the universe. I said, I want to offer this work in places where it can really help people and where it's really needed. So three days later, I get this phone call from Israel from two women, one of them Palestinian, one of them Jewish. And they said, we want to come to the circle work training, a training where I, I teach people to work with circles. And um, we have a nonprofit organization that provides scholarships for these things, so we were able to raise the funds, bring them to the training. Um, they then went back to Israel, and they invited me to come to Israel. And they were connected with a lot of peace workers, activists, uh, women's communities. Um, and so that is how it started. Um, and then I remember one woman coming. I was always so struck by the fact in Israel that there were a lot of Arab women who came, but there were no women from the West Bank or from Gaza because they couldn't come to Israel. And I started thinking about the women in the West Bank. And then one woman showed up who had a very special kind of permit who was able to cross over. And she came. And she had an amazing breakthrough in the circle. And she said, I want you to come and work with the women in the West Bank. So in 2010... Um, I did the, it was, this was the first ever women's retreat in the West Bank. It was astounding to me. There's all these peace workers going to the West Bank and doing peace work, but nobody had ever offered a retreat for the women. So these, and, and we didn't know if they'd show up. 
we didn't know if their husbands would let them come. Um, and they really are tied to their families. And people said to me, you know, you want to do this for a whole weekend? There's no way they're going to come for a whole weekend. Well, we had limited it to 20 women. Before we knew it, 40 women had signed up. And we were in a room that was like, you know, about an eighth of the size of this room. And it was amazing. It was so beautiful. Um, So, you know, I think that there is a hunger. And wherever the hunger is, people will begin to ask for it. I know somebody there had a question. Okay, and we should be, this should be the uh, last question because we're just about out of time. I I was just wondering if you have guidelines for how the circle goes besides the talking stick and the deep listening that people do, they talk, or is there any other guidelines that you um, use to create any kind of structure? There are, I think. Like is it only two hours long or what? Yeah, there are a lot of guidelines, but I think it's beyond what we can do tonight. I mean, I I offer these week-long trainings for people who want to lead circles um, or just people who want to work with groups in a deeper way. Um, But I would say that there is a lot of information now on the Internet available I know Jean. Website, your website that you. Were my website, but also Jean Boland's website, The Millionth Circle. Um, you'll see lists of resources. There are there's a huge amount of information that is available. Then um, Christina Baldwin's work. Um, she has a book called Calling the Circle. Um, a lot of people these days are working with circles, so there is a lot of information available. And uh, is your website Circles Work? Um, Well, there are two websites. You can go to the website of the Institute for Circle Work. And by the way, if you pick up a a postcard, it'll be on there. Um, The Institute for Circle Work dot org, or you can just go circleswork dot org. Or if you can remember my name, which unfortunately is a hard one, Jalaja Bonheim dot com, that is my website also. And in your book, you have a chapter on circles. A, a chapter and many stories, many, many stories. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, I was in Dalaja's first circle work training 25 years ago. And I just want to tell people that one of the things that's so profound is that when I sit around campfires, I hold the sacred circle. So even if you don't create a sacred circle where you do training, each time you're in that environment, once you've learned how to create the sacredness of it, you bring it to every single circle. So that's Mm -hmm. the gift that you bring in. So it doesn't have to be you have to organize a group and make sure everybody's doing their work. You just bring the sacredness into it. And that was an incredible gift Mm. from her to me. Mm. Thank you. Mm. Well, thanks so much for both being here and uh, doing the work that you do. Oh, thank you. Uh, and it was—it's a pleasure to listen to you. It's so uh, 
clear and articulate. I, I don't know if your experience is just as as she was talking, saying, "Oh yeah, that makes complete sense." You know, you know when when you're <laughs> tracking somebody and saying, "Of course, yeah, oh, they're saying just what I kind of felt somewhere there inside, but just so uh, clear and." Um, uh, warm-heartedly presented. Mm. So thank you very much. Yeah, I can see you. why you, um, why your work is uh, touching so many people. Thank you. And I look forward to uh, the, f- the finished product of the book, besides yes. the galleys. I so. do too. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak about it. It's so wonderful to speak about something that I feel so much passion about. Mm. Thank you. So we'll close with a, a short loving kindness. Just uh, feeling the blessing of being, uh, we're not exactly in a circle configuration, but there's a circle-like feel to hear of us just sharing the silence, sharing good hearts and good vision, uh, envisioning a peaceful world and a kinder, wiser world. And feeling your own sincerity of goodness that wants to share with others and feel that connection. And wishing that all people can feel that deep longing for connection so their goodness comes out, their love comes out, and then shared not only with our species, but with all of life on this planet and beyond. May all find peace in their lives. May all in their journey learn to love well. May all realize the highest happiness and may our coming here together be of benefit to not only ourselves and everyone in our tribe but rippling out to uh, all beings everywhere.